Well, we're starting a new series uh, this week, um, beginning Christmas. I've entitled this uh, Celebrating Some Hidden Heroes because a lot of the people who were um, involved around Jesus in his birth are amazing heroes. They're hidden heroes. And this morning, we want to talk about great people being forged in obscurity as we talk about Elizabeth and Zechariah. I wonder how many of you have heard of the name of Chester Carlton. Probably not many. But I want to tell you that the invention that he came up with is in your house, it's in your office, and if the invention that he came up with breaks down in your house, you are going to immediately go to your local office supply store and you're going to buy another one of them, most likely for about $39. It's your computer printer. And you take that for granted, don't you? Want to print off a recipe? No problem. I'll print it off. Want to print off something that's a silly joke? No problem. You print it off right there in your home. That was invented by a guy named Chester Carlson. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about this guy's story because it's an amazing example of greatness being forged in obscurity. Carlson grew up in uh, Seattle, 1906. He grew up in terrible poverty. His father was chronically ill. Chester, as a teenager, became the family's sole provider. He was so poor that this house that they lived in didn't have enough room for him, the provider, and so he often slept in a sleeping bag in the alley behind the house. He uh, got into uh, Caltech, California Institute of Technology, majored in physics, and discovered something about himself. He loved to invent things. Upon graduation, he was hired by Bell Labs in New York to be, to be uh, inventing things through the laboratory, but life didn't go well for him. He was so painfully shy that his wife divorced him, and in order to have something to do, he went to the New York Public Library. He enrolled in night classes at the law school, and he began copying down law books that he needed for his class. And he thought, there's got to be a better way than copying down law books. He got into the section of the New York Public Library on this, this new thing called photoelectricity invented by Albert Einstein or discussed by Albert Einstein. And he, he thought, how can I transfer an image onto a piece of paper? How do I do what we take for granted? He's asking that question. And he had an idea. And in 1938, he rented the janitorial closet of a beauty parlor hired a physicist, and began working on this process, almost burned the place down. And in 1938, they hit pay dirt. Here is the first Xerox copy. October 22nd, 1938. That was a big deal. He began to sell this to companies, and nobody cared. Nobody cared about this. They thought it was sort of ridiculous. Finally, the Halloid Corporation, which became Xerox, bought, bought into it, and they introduced what they called the Model A. Now, they're, I mean, you know, the marketing department's not in their best game. If, what do we name this? The Model A. How about that? 
That's not, that's not the best game for the marketing department. That machine required a full-time copy operator. Sounds like a Saturday Night Live skit, doesn't it? A full-time copy uh, operator. And a, a lot of them just sent this back. We're returning this, you know, because it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not working for us. By the late 50s, early 60s, they invented the Xerox 914, a slightly better marketing department than that. It weighed 650 pounds. But here's the deal. Every time they installed that machine in an office, people copied 10 times more than they anticipated they would. Why? Because they thought, sweet, we can copy this down. We can have a backup on this. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you ask the question, what became of Chester Carlton? He became fabulously wealthy because he got a cut on all the copy machines that were, that were delivered. So what did he do with his wealth? Uh, he, he actually earned $100 million, uh, $200 million by the middle 1960s. That's if I got the, my figures right, that's about a, that's about a billion in today's, today's dollars. So what did he do with the money? Well, here's what he didn't do. He didn't up his lifestyle. He didn't buy a boat. He didn't buy houses in Aspen, Paris, and London. He didn't up his lifestyle. His wife had to tell him, honey, we don't need to buy third-class tickets anymore on the train. We, we can buy second-class. It's okay. When he gave money to Caltech, he didn't have it in his name. He had it in the name of his favorite, his favorite professor. This guy, whose character was formed in obscurity, did not become prideful when he attained massive success. In five years, he gave away $100 million, roughly half of his wealth. That's a half a billion in, in today's in today's dollars. Very different than Gates, Bezos, Zuckerberg, and Jobs. Very different. What I want to argue is this. It is exceedingly rare for somebody to become phenomenally successful and maintain their sense of character. God often forms people in a place of obscurity so that they will have that character that can change people's lives. So we see this in Zechariah and Elizabeth. We see uh, different aspects of their obscurity. We begin with a very painful obscurity. Elizabeth and Zechariah most likely feel that life at this point has passed them by. by. We start with verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Luke is intentionally trying to contrast a humble couple from a modest background with a proud and pretentious king, because in verse 124, he talks about Elizabeth, and after these days, after these days, and Luke wants us to connect the days of King Herod the Great to the days of Elizabeth so that we will make a contrast between two sorts of days. 
the days of a proud and successful man and the days of a humble and obscure woman. These are two different kinds of days. This is a contrast of days, the powerful versus the humble, the energetic versus the elderly, the visible versus the hidden. This is the same contrast that you and I feel in this room. Because some of you are living in the days of Elizabeth. Your days are days of of obscurity. Maybe you had days of energy in the past. You had some days of Herod in your past. But you're living maybe today in a day of obscurity. And you're thinking, how do I process my place of obscurity right now? How do I process that? Well, if you ask that question, welcome to Elizabeth's life and Zachariah's life. So let me contrast this so that you you get a feel for it. What were the days of Herod like? The days of Herod were phenomenal. King Herod the Great was the most amazing person at one level in the ancient world. He was the He was the Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart of architects and builders. He was the Michael Jordan or LeBron James of architects or builders. He was the Tom Brady. He was the Dak Prescott of builders. He was amazing in his abilities. Uh, Herod um, built astonishing palaces. This is, on the one on the left is Macarius by the Dead Sea, a huge Beautiful palace. That's the place where John the Baptist had his head lopped off. Uh, he, he actually built a mountain. I mean, how many of you have, have, have like built, a, I'm going to build a house, you know, maybe out in the country. I'm going to build a mountain. Uh, he built a mountain with uh, the palace up on top of the mountain. He built in the Masada Palace a tri-level palace on the edge of Masada that had a steam room in there where slaves would, would take up the water from, the, from below and they would have a steam room in, in the mountain. He built the city of Caesarea by the sea. He built his palace in Jerusalem that had towers that were named after the people he killed. Oh, darn, I've killed somebody. I'm going to name my tower after them just so I don't feel so, so bad. And, of course, he built the famous Herodian temple in Jerusalem, the temple that Jesus went into, The temple where Jesus did all of his miracles, this guy was an astonishingly successful person. If you look at all the leaders in the ancient world, this guy was the most well-rounded, the most diverse in terms of his gifts. He was brilliant in every way and horribly unhappy, horribly unhappy. He has 10 wives, five were significant, wives historically, five were obscure wives historically, and he killed at least two of his ten wives, and with Mariamne, he killed her sons, her parents, her brother, and then he died of gangrene, horribly painful death, alienating everybody. So what do you think about the days of Herod? Would you want to be in Herod's place, phenomenally gifted? but deeply, desperately unhappy. Those were the days of Herod. Everybody reading this would go, days of Herod, know what that's like, know how cool he was at one level, how bad he was at another level, know know what that's like. Do you want the days of Herod? A lot of you who read 
People Magazine, nothing wrong with reading People Magazine, but a lot of times you read People Magazine, you, oh boy, would that be fun to be in, in, in their place. And you're, you're, you're fantasizing about the days of somebody amazing from the world standpoint, not knowing what's going on behind the scenes. Days of Herod are the days that a lot of people wanted, but behind the scenes, a lot of pain. So what about the days of Elizabeth? <laughs> well, Elizabeth lived in the village of Ain Karem. And if you look at this picture taken in 1948, um, it's pretty bleak. Now, the trees that are there most likely were not there in the first century. This was a desolate, desolate place. Five miles from Jerusalem, five miles from Bethlehem. So, five miles in the ancient world is a long, long way. She is out in the boonies. She's out in the sticks. And her life is very quiet. It's very simple. She's not leading anything internationally. She's not doing anything, you know, to of note historically at this point in time. If you're going to change the world, this is not the place that you would want to be from. Not only did they come from an obscure place, they endured a terrible tragedy. They were childless. And childlessness in the ancient world representing some, represents something far different than it represents in our world. Having a child was a retirement policy. Having no child means you had no retirement policy. You would know nobody to take care of you in your old age. Having a child was a point of significance socially. Having no child meant you had no social significance within your community. Having a child meant that your husband could begin to throttle back a little bit in his work in his old age. So a, a wife would definitely feel that her identity was rooted in whether or not she had produced a child or, or children. This was a terrible tragedy. Now, I want you to think about the compounded nature of this tragedy because imagine Elizabeth and Zechariah in their 20s. This was the couple most likely to, to succeed. Elizabeth was the, was the daughter of a priest. Zechariah had become a priest. I mean, they're very likely to succeed. As their 20s move into their 30s and 40s and 50s, now the dream of having children is being crushed and broken, and now they're at the place where they don't even dream that anymore. This is the couple who has endured great pain. And I can promise you that Elizabeth is thinking, wow, my life has just sort of passed me by. I'm not the person I thought it would be. The dreams that I had, I had, I had hoped are not, are not there. Now let's pause for a moment from the story. Why does God allow people seasons of obscurity? Why does he allow that? The biblical reason is that God forms character in times of obscurity. And the biblical application is don't despise seasons of obscurity. These are times where God forms and builds your character. Anybody know who this guy is? Shout out his name. 
Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the greatest composers of the ancient world. This guy lived in obscurity. He, he never graduated from college. He didn't have a university degree like, like many had. His music in the high Baroque period was, was sort of becoming outdated. And um, he, was, he was working in this, in this city, um, this little backwater city of Leipzig, and he was a genuine follower of Christ. So he, he thinks, he thinks, nobody will hear my music in 10 years, nobody will hear my music in 50 years, nobody will care about what I'm going to do. And nobody did for 75 years until Felix Mendelssohn discovered his manuscripts. So what do you do if you, if you think, I'm going into a place of obscurity and nobody's going to know who I am? What do you do? You write music to the glory of God. And Johann Sebastian Bach wrote vast, a vast output of music, sensing that nobody would ever listen to it. And he wrote it, he wrote it for God. He wrote it for God. What did obscurity do in Bach's life? Obscurity produced character the kind of character that many of his contemporary composers simply did not possess. Think about these two guys, Kurt Warner and C.S. Lewis. Josh, are those two guys comparable? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, random comparison, right? C.S. Lewis did not think anybody would care about his writings 10 years after he died. Nobody will care about my stuff. Nobody will care about my kids' books. Nobody will care about my philosophical. Was he wrong? Yes, he was. Even though he was well-known during his life, he thought he was destined for obscurity. What did that do for him? It forged character. Uh, Kurt Warner, before he won the Super Bowl, was sacking groceries playing in the Arena League. He goes from there, rises to the top, and wins in the Super Bowl. Two, two people whose character was forged in obscurity. And the biblical answer to obscurity is don't despise it. Go with it. Flow with it. Because God uses obscurity to cause people to grow character. So we go from a painful obscurity now to a fearful obscurity. Zechariah has one more lesson to learn before God elevates him. One more lesson. And it's a, it's, a, it's a big lesson. Here's a lesson in a nutshell. Even though your dreams have been broken, do not give in to fear. <clears throat> do not give in to fear. Reject fear, even if past dreams have been broken. And in Luke 1.8, we see Zechariah was given the greatest opportunity of, a, of his life. Now, <clears throat> by the way, um, they, it says they were advanced in years. To, to be old in the ancient world was to be 60. 60. To be well advanced in years, maybe as old as 80. It's possible that they're in their 70s, late 70s, maybe, maybe early 80s. While he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So how'd this work? Well, the temple of Herod was very large, about 34 acres big. It's about as big as the Pentagon in Washington. 
And there were 18,000 priests who were tasked with serving in the temple. These priests were divided into 24 divisions. Zechariah was a member of the 8th division, the division of Abijah. And the priests were called to serve in the temple for one week, twice per year. But because there were so many priests, many of them didn't personally do any of the fun stuff. They didn't do the important stuff, which was like going into the temple and actually lighting the altar of incense. So you had, to, you had to cast lots to see who would do the fun stuff, the important stuff, to light the altar of incense. So think about this. Zechariah had been doing this for decades. Every, every year, you know, he, he cast his lot. No, I wasn't chosen. No, I wasn't chosen. No, I wasn't chosen. Gosh, I'm in my 70s. I wasn't chosen. No, I wasn't chosen. No, I wasn't chosen. I don't have any kids. What is Zechariah possibly feeling? <sighs> Like nothing ever really goes my way in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not, I don't see my, the trajectory of my career going, you know, where I hoped it would go, where I, where I thought it would go. And on this particular occasion, his lot was chosen. So here's how it worked. The groups uh, would walk into the holy place. Uh, they would... Uh, walk together into the holy place in the temple. Once in there, the priests as a group would tie a rope around the designated priest. And then the priest as a group would exit the holy place. And then the priest would, would light the altar of incense. Now, why the rope around his ankle? Because if there was sin in that priest's life and that priest died of the judgment of God, well, they didn't want to go into that, rescue that guy. They, they wanted to drag him, his dead body, out so they wouldn't have to risk death by going into the presence of God. So there's Zechariah alone in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place. And he's about ready to offer incense on the altar when something, something amazing happens. The angel of the Lord instantly appears on the right side of the altar of incense between the altar of incense and the candle stand. And you can imagine this rush of adrenaline surges through Zacharias because this had not been a time of many miracles. I mean, between the Testaments, there was not a whole lot of miracles going on. Now, here's a definite miracle. And he realizes, oh my gosh, it's like the angel of the Lord, you know, am I about to die? That's probably what he thought. Am, am, am I about to die? I mean, here I've, I'm, I'm pretty old, don't have any kids. Uh, is God displeased with me? Am, am I about to die? He is seized with fear. The angel quickly reassures Zechariah, and the angel announces the birth of a son, John the Baptist. The angel says, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now, what, what prayer are we talking about? What prayer are we talking about? Uh, it's got to be the decades-long prayer that Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed for a child. Now, I, I can almost guarantee you they stopped praying that prayer after Elizabeth went through menopause. I mean, opportunity's over. They don't pray that 
prayer, most likely, anymore. The angel remembered the prayer. God remembered the prayer. Just as an aside, do you have any prayers that you have stopped praying because you think, that'll never happen? It's not going to take place. I'll just say, don't stop praying prayers like that. I've told you this many times. We prayed for my grandfather for 25 years before he came to Christ. And there were many years where I thought, there is no way my grandfather will shift from his atheism. No way. But he did. He did. Don't stop praying deeply held prayers. Um, the angel continues. Your wife, Elizabeth, um, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be <laughs> he'll be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom, uh, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What an announcement. Now, I just want you to notice, he says five things about John. Number one, John will be a prophet. Wow! Zechariah must have thought, amazing! I'm going to be the dad of a prophet? That's incredible. You know, to contextualize this, imagine somebody said to you, you are going to be the mother and father of an NFL quarterback who wins the Super Bowl. How'd you feel? That's awesome. Well, multiply that times 10, and you feel, you'll feel about how, how Zechariah is feeling. Um, not only is he going to be a prophet, he's going to be a major prophet, prophet like, like Elijah. Not only that, he's going to be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. That's like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, only better. He's not going to consume strong drink or wine, meaning he's going to be like Samuel, who was Israel's first prophet, and John is going to spark a major revival, and prepare the way for the Lord. So this is like the most astonishing gift to Zechariah. He's hearing things that make him think, this is amazing, amazing. After all these years, God is blessing me beyond what I could possibly imagine. But now we have a problem. And the problem that we have is that he begins to doubt. Luke 1.18, how shall I know this? <laughs> For, like, I'm an old man, and my, my wife's pretty old too. And if you read between the lines, he's saying, um, you know, biologically, uh, this might, uh, how's this going to happen? I'm not sure it's going to happen. Now, people speculate about why he says this. Some people think this, he's saying just, this is biological. I'm too old. We're too old to have kids. Others think he, he might be tired, just tired. Like, like he's, he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm too old for this. Um, I, I, I can't do this anymore. Uh, I used to dream about this. I'm not dreaming about this anymore. I don't, I don't want to raise a child now. I'm in my 80s. Um, I, I don't want to do this. Change diapers? Come on, I don't think so. Others think um, Zechariah is revealing the character of a man who has broken dreams. 
Somebody who has hoped, and his hopes have been dashed. And then he hoped again, and then his hopes were dashed again. Now, I don't know which of the three this is, but what I want to suggest is that many people whose dreams have been broken and crushed, many, many people, don't want to hope again because hope is painful. When your dreams have been repeatedly broken, sometimes you think, ah, you know, I'm going to let the dream go. Because if I start hoping again, I'm going to feel pain again. And I don't want to feel the pain. So this doubt is a doubt that is rooted in fear. It's a doubt that's rooted in anxiety. Do I really want to hope in this dream again? I'm not... I'm not sure. And so the angel gives Zechariah a severe mercy. It is a kind discipline. It is a stern grace. And here's what the angel says. You are not going to talk for nine months. Now, you'll find out in a second, it's not just he couldn't talk. He couldn't hear for nine months. He couldn't talk or hear for nine months. This is a severe mercy. It is a, it is a stern discipline. Why is it a severe mercy and a stern discipline? You know, he was in his 70s or 80s probably, but, uh, you know, and hearing does, you know, naturally go, but he could hear. He could speak, okay? So this is a miraculous sign to him. Why was that a miraculous sign? It's the reason why is because he needed something continuously supernatural to cast vision to his wife in the supernatural character of what was about to happen. Would have been better if he'd said like Mary, may it be done to me according to your word, Lord. But he didn't do that. So God gives him a severe mercy, a continuously supernatural sign so that he would rev up faith to be able to encourage his wife Elizabeth. Well, meanwhile, all the priests are outside waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and they think something's wrong. Maybe they gave a little tug <laughs> on, his, on his foot there, you know, like, uh, are you okay? What's going on in there? Um, and when he comes out, they see his incredulous expression on his face. They see that he can't talk. They realize that he's seen a vision. They press him for more information. He can't hear a word they're saying. He can't speak a word that's in his heart. And all of this, do you realize, all of this has taken place in the hiddenness of the holy place. Here's what I find amazing. As good a man as Zechariah was, he had a character flaw just like you and I have character flaws. And his character flaw was fear. Now, whether your character flaw is fear of failure, fear of fresh hope, fear of the unknown, maybe it's a catastrophization fear of what you think might be out there, whatever that fear is, it's character flaw. And those fears prevent us from doing what Mary did. Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Had a character flaw. Now, <clears throat> uh, most of you have seen the movie Les Miserables. Uh, one of my favorite, all-time favorite musicals, all-time favorite movies. Seen it a number of times. Loved the Bartlesville 
production of it many years ago. But here's, here's Fontaine, and here's what she says. I, do you want me to sing this? No, I, 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 won't, I won't sing it, no. Uh, yeah. I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. Can you hear Elizabeth in those words? Dreaming of a child, dreaming of a family, dreaming of a large family. That didn't happen. She was abandoned, Fontaine was. But the tigers come at night with their voices soft as thunder as they tear your hopes apart, as they turn your dreams to shame. And then she says, there are dreams that cannot be, there are storms we cannot weather. Now, I listen to that musical, that, in that musical, very powerful, very profound words, and I, I hear Elizabeth in that, and the pain that Elizabeth had, the pain that Zechariah had. And there is, there is a character in us that is formed in the presence of fear. Read a book this past week, and the book called, was called We Died Before We Came. It was about a couple who went to, I think, Libya, and the husband was killed by, uh, was attacked and killed in Libya. And one of the things that they said in this book was, you know, we, we, we already we already died before we came. I mean, we died to ourselves before we came. That's remarkable character. But you know what? This wife who lost her husband still had to go through the human grief of loss and fear for the future. There's a character that, that is formed in the presence of fear that cycles downward into feeling trapped in that fear. And Zechariah had to learn this. He had to learn this as God was blessing him with something amazing. So here's my question. To what extent has fear in your life prevented you from hoping in God? To what extent has it prevented you from hoping in God? The angel is calling Zechariah to a new level of hope. I believe the God of the universe is calling you to a new level of hope. And he wants you to address your fear. You know, for me personally, I constantly have to address my fear of failure. Uh, I don't know why that has been such a dominant thing in my life. I constantly have to address it in my life, that fear of failure. And so on a probably a weekly basis, I'm going to have to say, that's fear of failure. I am not going to give in to that. The trial that I'm going through right now is a test of my joyful confidence in God, and I'm going to remain joyfully confident in Him and not give in to what is very easy for me to give in to, which is, which is fear of failure. So now we go to a joyful obscurity because Zechariah and Elizabeth now enter into obscurity as a spiritual discipline. They were in a sort of enforced obscurity before. And then now a fearful obscurity in the temple. Now this is the joyful discipline of obscurity. And they're trusting in God for, for this, this new dream. Now, they are going to use the, the discipline of solitude and obscurity. Why? Because they were trained to do this. 
for decades. And the training of this makes it now easy to live in solitude, in an obscure solitude, which is good for the soul. Um, they don't tweet it out, hey guys, awesome news in about you know, nine months, can't wait, you know, stay posted to my Facebook tweet, my Twitter feeds, my Facebook posts. Obviously, you know, that's easy for us to, to do. You know, we want to get it out there. This is the discipline of obscurity and quietness. So how did this work with them? Well, Luke one twenty four. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. There is a world of information conveyed in those seven words. Think about it. Zechariah comes back home to Elizabeth. They embrace. She realizes something's wrong. You can't hear anything I say. You can't speak. What happened to you? What's, what's going on? What's going on? And Zechariah has to communicate using a tablet two things. This is the vision that I had. And guess what, Elizabeth? We need to resume a physical relationship and have a baby. Now, if, if you have battled infertility, you know what a dicey communication that would have been. Like, ah, uh, wait, are you telling me that we're, you want me to dream about having a, babe, a baby again? Seriously? This could have been a very difficult communication, and he can't talk. And so this would have been um, a very challenging thing for them to, to do. But she uh, immediately obeys God, and in time she conceives. How does she, how does she know she's conceived? She's, she's past the age of childbearing. How does she know? Part of her hiddenness is a hiddenness that says, I will seize this promise between me and God, and I will not tell anybody, this is just between God and I, and it's going to be not a month before I find out. It may be, it may be until I start showing. I don't know how long that's going to be. could be three, four, five, five months, however, however long this is. She stays hidden. She remains to herself. And what's she doing during this time? It's a season of concentrated personal worship. She says, for five months, she, uh, she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Now we find out what had been happening all those decades in that village. She was ostracized. She was shamed. The other women, maybe they were nice about it, but they sort of looked down on her thinking, poor Elizabeth, something's wrong with you, girl. Something's wrong with you. You didn't have a baby. I don't know what it is, but... Yeah, you know, well, no, we're not going to invite Elizabeth to our party because, ah, I don't know, didn't have a child. And now God has taken away that reproach. Now, here's my question for you. If you have a dream, should you enter a season of hiddenness? I would argue, yes, you should. Today we call that discipline, the discipline of solitude. The discipline of solitude says, I am going to take this dream that I have and I'm going to lay this before God in an extended time of solitude. 
And I'm going to say, God, I lay this before you. This is what I want. Lord God, will you give this to me? It's what I want. Lay it before the, Lord, the God of the universe in a time of solitude. Now, I, I think the Bible reveres a, a, an amazing, consistent pattern. And the pattern is this. God tends to shape his leaders in hidden places. He shapes Moses 40 years in the wilderness. He shapes Paul three years in Arabia. He shapes Jesus 30 years of obscurity in Nazareth. God tends to shape his leaders in hidden places. It's really hard to be hidden these days. Social media makes it easy to not want to be hidden. Really hard to be hidden. What I want to tell you is this. God loves to shape his leaders in hidden places. And if that's you, I encourage you to think about entering into a season, a period of solitude where you take your dreams, you lay them out before God and say, God, will you please direct me with this dream? Let's pray.